This evening I'd like to talk about some of the peaks and valleys of meditation practice. There is a commonly held view that sees meditation as a process of gradual and reliable progress that from when we begin in meditation, we will consistently and gradually improve and develop and progress. We call it practice. And many of our own associations with practice is that the more you do something, the better you get at it. We hope, in this view, it's often seen that or hope that we will move dependably and hopefully not too slowly from one state to another. Hope that we'll move from confusion to clarity, from a time when we experience the hindrances to a time when we will be able to say farewell forever to the hindrances. We anticipate perhaps moving reliably and gradually from confusion to understanding, from contraction to openness, and anticipate a movement from agitation to a place of serenity. We also hope that this is a one-way movement. (laughs) It's also hoped that we will notice a change, a gradual and a progressive change from a place of having to make a lot of effort in our practice to a time when we will discover a new dimension of effortlessness, that we will move from having to struggle with things to a time when the practice and the actual cultivation of attention will come with a real sense of ease to us. In this view, it's often also hoped that we will go from a time of having to work on things, pay attention, focus, that gradually and gradually we will get so good at this that at some point we'll be able to relax in some kind of enlightened retirement (laughs) and a place where we don't actually have to do so much anymore, where we don't have to do any more of this business of coming back and paying attention, observing, and looking at things that we will have deserved. Some final rest from this. And it's often felt, you know, that, that this kind of relaxation or this time when all of this will stop will come as a result or even as a reward for all the time and the effort that we have put in. And we feel that we deserve it. Everyone deserves some moments, at least, of some bliss or joy or peace. This view of gradual progression and gradual development, it's a hopeful and it's an optimistic view In some ways, it's totally realistic. In other ways, it is totally unrealistic. It is true that 
Some expectations about meditation are realistic to hold and you can anticipate seeing some definite changes come about. It's realistic to expect a greater and a greater abiding sense of attentiveness and wakefulness come into your life. And the anticipation of these deeper changes is basically good news to us. I mean, we don't do this in order to get more closely acquainted with what a sore knee feels like or what boredom is all about. You can expect a deeper sensitivity to come into your life and to come into your heart. You can expect, realistically, that struggles lessen as the noise and the busyness of our preoccupations quiets. We come to know a place within ourselves where there can be an abiding sense of calm and a deep sense of balance and equanimity amidst many of the obstacles and many of the difficulties that come to us in our lives. You can expect that through the insights that can emerge in this practice, a greater sense of harmony and clarity to come both to your life, your relationships with others, and a greater sense of harmony and clarity in your relationship to your own being. You can also anticipate, quite honestly, that there will come a time that through the insight and understanding that emerges, that the hindrances we experience in the practice will end in our lives. That we will come to, can come to a place where we no longer feel the need to distance ourselves, to distract ourselves, to avoid things. And then the hindrances also come to an end in our practice. And you can expect that you can come to a place in this meditation where, believe it or not, if it's not too strong a word to use, it's actually a joy to sit. And it's actually a joy to be still. And that every sitting is, sim- is not, a, it's not a great drama. It's not a huge effort. It is simply just another way of coming closer to a very deep sense of stillness and richness and creativity. What we do here is not a rehearsal for some other life or some other time or some other place in the future. What we do here is not to achieve some result or some goal at some far distant point in the future. The practice that we do here is to learn at this moment in our lives, to learn in this time, what it is to live with peace, what it is to live with spontaneity, what it is to live with openness and with sensitivity. These are our possibilities. The practice that we do here is to learn in every moment of our retreat really what it means to experience and to live in a real spirit of freedom and a spirit of integrity and dignity and compassion. In my understanding of meditation, it doesn't make any empty or any false promises. Its meditation speaks about the possibility of love and of clarity and of wisdom. Those possibilities that are spoken of 
speak to us of our own potential and our own possibilities. They are not the territory of any special person. They are not the territory of any special place. The people that we admire in the spiritual life, the people who have guided us, the people who inspire us, the great teachers, they did not have anything that we don't have. They didn't come, they weren't born necessarily with some special aptitude for meditation, some great talent. They weren't born into a life necessarily of great ease and support and community. They did not have anything we don't have. Everyone that we admire had within themselves the same resources, the same possibilities that we have in this moment a capacity to see, to feel, and to understand, a capacity to be awake and to be aware. Nothing more, and nothing more is ever needed. All that we need in order to be awake, we hold within our hearts, ourselves, our being, in this moment in our lives. And all of our own inner gifts and our inner resources are brought to fruition through our own effort and through our own understanding. This view, though, that sees meditation as this progressive development has a certain unrealistic aspect to it. When we see meditation as a gradual, as a linear progression, which many of us find ourselves doing at certain points, it poses many problems for us. We start to look for signs of progress and to evaluate ourselves by those signs. Sometimes we've had an experience in a sitting or in a retreat that we define as being good. Sometimes we have experiences that we define as being special even if we've never had any of those good sittings or those good signs, everyone certainly has images, at least, of what they are. Everyone at least has expectations of what should happen and what a good meditation actually is. And when we think in terms of progress and development in a linear way, we start to look for those signposts and to evaluate our own worth and our own success as a meditator, by their presence or by their absence. We start to think in terms of success and failure in meditation. There is no such thing in meditation, and yet that is easier to say than it is to believe. No matter how many times we hear that there's no such thing as a good sitting, most people hold a secret belief system within themselves that there is indeed such a thing as a good sitting and a bad sitting. And they are very clear about the distinction between the two. (laughs) How often we find ourselves thinking in terms of progress and regression and caught up in judgments about what is happening to us, about what we are experiencing. And so often our judgments are so totally inaccurate. They're completely unrealistic. We think in terms of gaining 
attainments and of course we also think in terms of losing what we've gained. And how often do we base ourselves, our picture of ourselves, our sense of ourselves, who we are, on what is happening in our meditation? How often do we define our own worth, our own value, our own capacity by what we experience in the moment, by what we judge in the moment as being good or bad, as being a success or as a failure? How many times do you find yourself in those places, comparing yourself to others, of judging your experience of being inadequate, of rejecting your meditation as being worthless, of rejecting yourself as being incapable because of the judgments that are superimposed upon your experience. There is no way, and I I can't say this too strongly, there is simply no way to measure the impact or the worth of one single sitting. There is no way, no yardstick that we can possibly use to measure depth, or to measure understanding or change that is taking place within ourselves. No yardstick that we can use to measure insight. How many times it happens that we come into a retreat or into a sitting and feel like absolutely nothing is happening, feel like you're just putting in time and that there's nothing going on, in a way you're wasting your time, And then you go from that sitting sometime later into a situation which is previously being charged or overwhelming and find that something has simply changed and dropped away. And there's been no neon light headlines about some insight that has taken place. The process of letting go is often so subtle that it is not registered conceptually. How many times do we sit and we feel that we're, we're just lost in, in conflict or in confusion? And we leave that sitting, you know, kind of sad and unhappy and our brow is wrinkled. You know, you've seen this many times if people come out of the meditation room. And you, you, in that moment, you know, you can have some real explosion of understanding and some real explosion of insight. There is no way, no kind of time scale you can measure, use to measure changes that are taking place. One of my favorite stories about the Buddha's time is, you know, when, you know, in the stories about the Buddha's time, you know, people got enlightened left, right, and center. You know, the Buddha just had to wink, and there were 50 arahants, you know. And I don't know how true these stories are, but, you know, here's this, here's, I think it was Ananda, you know, everybody was getting enlightened except for Ananda, he was feeling kind of bad about it. So he stayed up night after night, day and night, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, determined he had to get enlightened too. Got to that point of just giving up and he was about to lie down and there was this great awakening. So be aware. (laughs) You never know in that picking up of your cup of tea that moment of despair. You can't measure the way in which changes take place. And you don't want to miss it. So stay awake. That would be the most unfortunate thing. 
For most people, their practice simply does not develop in a linear or a progressive way. For most people, their practice is a series of valleys and peaks and valleys. And often in the beginning, that movement from valleys to peaks is like a roller coaster ride. You can go from the depths of despair to the heights of heaven in a moment and just as quickly back to the depths of despair in ways that seem totally unpredictable. And so often the peaks that we experience, moments of peace, moments of silence, moments of of real opening, are so quickly followed, almost immediately by by a valley. You know, you can experience a moment of real clarity. You know, when all the struggle just ends and you feel that you've finally arrived. You know, you're really with a total breath and you feel so present and you breathe a great sigh of relief and think, finally I've got here. This is where I was meant to be. (laughs) And you're congratulating yourself. And just in the moment of congratulating yourself, it dissolves and it all falls apart. In the next moment, you find yourself groping again in the quicksands of dullness. And you think then, you know, what have I done to deserve this? I shouldn't be here. I thought I had finished with all of this. And you start looking for the peak again. It is so, the valleys and the peaks are a real part of this practice unfolding. It is unrealistic to look for this linear development. The valleys and the peaks are a real part of deepening in clarity and understanding. Something does change in those valleys and peaks. It does become clearer to us why they take place. The process of the changes from a valley to a peak also becomes much clearer to us. And so these extremes of despair and elation level out. You know, you're not, you know, when you get up into a a peak, you're not believing that you're going to stay there forever. And neither do you fall into pits of despair when you find yourself in a valley. There is a sense of understanding why they are taking place. Less of despair and depression around them. But still that movement can continue between valleys and peaks. Something else that changes is that as we deepen in the practice, a certain maturity comes about. When we begin in meditation, I feel, we are really just focused upon and centered around getting to the peaks. You know, we believe this is the aim of meditation, is to get to the peaks the highs, the moments of joy, the stillness, the quietness, and to stay there as long as we can and to hold on to them as long as we can and to try and recapture them when we seem to lose them. And in the beginning of meditation too, this can continue for quite some time, we tend to view the valleys that we experience, the moments of doubt, dullness, confusion, with aversion and contempt, or we tend to view them as hindrances that we must get over and transcend as quickly as we can so that we can really begin to meditate or so that we can get to the place that conforms at least to our images of meditation. 
What does change is our attitude and our relationship about the valleys and about the peaks. We understand, can relate to the peaks as moments of opening, as places of great richness and great beauty. We can also relate to the valleys as places which hold some of our deepest learning and some of our deepest understanding and changes are held within the valleys. The valleys reveal to us so many of the places that we actually grasp hold of. The valleys reveal to us what we resist and what we avoid. The valleys reveal to us many of the things about ourselves that we find it difficult to open to, that we reject or that we deny. And the valleys reveal to us the beliefs, actually, that limit us in our lives and in our meditation. And as we begin to appreciate what the valleys reveal to us, we don't see them so much anymore as opponents to be overcome. What we actually see is how much they teach us about ourselves, how much they reveal to us, how freeing those valleys can be when we bring to them a spirit of openness and a spirit of understanding. And we learn to look upon them with kindness and with openness. This evening I'd like to look at just a few of the valleys and the peaks that can arise and do arise. Not to say that everyone meets these. Some people do and some people don't. However, everyone gets into places at some point in their practice where we meet moments of resistance, moments of struggle. And these moments of resistance are our valleys and there is no one who will not have to travel through their own valleys. I also want to mention them because so often when we get into the valleys, we think that we're doing something wrong. You know, we think what, you know, at that sitting that we skipped this afternoon that was probably given some vital piece of information <laughs> that we missed and we've blown the whole retreat. We might think also, when we find ourselves in the valleys, it's also very easy to believe that they're going to last forever. The valleys come about inevitably. When we come into this situation, we immediately become so vulnerable in letting go of our props and so many of our identities. We come into this situation so naked and we are bound to encounter not just peaks, that, not just the peaks we hope for, but some of the valleys we don't, ex don't expect or welcome. The first of the valleys you've already met, Narayan spoke about them this morning when she spoke about the hindrances. And I don't want to dwell over long on them. You've probably dwelt long enough on them already. Only to say that there are really two, level to the two levels to the hindrances. That one of, them, one of those levels has to do with adjustment and recovery and has to do with learning to adjust to a different way of being here. The other part of the hindrances or the other dimension of the hindrances 
has much more to do with control and with letting go. Many people who have done retreats before know that the hindrances disappear after a couple of days and have strategies to work with them and feel that they work and that they've got over them. Often what has happened is that the hindrances appear in the first place because we come into unfamiliar territory. We don't feel so much in control. We feel challenged and threatened by it, and the hindrances arise. And what often happens after a couple of days is that the territory is no longer unfamiliar. And we feel once more in control to some extent. And so the hindrances seem to disappear. What is important to understand is that the hindrances will reappear. Not to feel that they are something that belongs just to the beginning of a retreat. The hindrances so often reappear in one form or another each time some level of letting go takes place. And you can anticipate that. And it doesn't mean that you've failed. It doesn't mean that you've fallen back. It actually indicates some level of change taking place. It can happen in a number of different ways. You may be sitting, and you may have some real insight into belief systems or opinions you've held about yourself, and you see them to be empty. And so often that is followed immediately by a few hours of absolute total dullness. You know, you may have some sense of change. You may find you're sitting and there's really not that much to hold on to. And you have a real sense of, of, of change and, and impermanence around you. And that there really isn't any way to, to keep things the same. And there can be some real deep understanding of that. And almost immediately you can be slammed by hours of agitation. And it's not to say, as I mentioned, that you've fallen back in any way. What has happened is that the insights or the, the seeing is telling us a great deal about what we hold on to, that there is some letting go, some deep inner process of questioning and letting go taking place. And the response to that letting go or the reaction to it is grasping. And the hindrances come up as a means of holding or protecting ourselves from that insight. It's this very curious thing that happens in meditation. Insight is liberating, but we are often afraid of what that liberation or what that awakening actually implies. Rather than judge or despair about the hindrances reappearing, I think it's important to acknowledge that the hindrances can actually be a part of letting go. They're not something to overcome. Certainly they are something to work skillfully with in the moment and to respond skillfully to in the moment. But to understand too that they are a sign of change, a sign of some understanding beginning to emerge. And so often following the hindrances, following that reappearance of the hindrances, we so often come to a deeper place of stillness and openness. If we can be patient with them, so often we find ourselves in just a very much deeper place of stillness and openness and sensitivity. Another change that takes place 
is that as you continue to focus and as we continue to pay attention, we find there does come much more stillness, much less struggle as the kind of driftwood of the mind just begins to fade a little. And then as I mentioned yesterday evening, what we become aware of is things called thought patterns. You know, the beginning of a retreat, I can mention thought patterns or mental states or tendencies. You don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But after a day or two, when you see something being replayed, you know, these records being replayed of tendencies and movements of mind, we know indeed what a pattern of conditioning is. And we become more aware of them. The fundamental tendencies, the fears, the anxieties, the resentments, the angers that do move and influence us. And it's not always easy to welcome that seeing. You know, there's that old statement of why is self-knowledge always bad news? And you understand that in a really heartfelt way in meditation that it can indeed seem just like one insult after another. You know, that you're not, nobody's insulting you, you are just insulted. <laughs> you insult your body, you insult your thoughts, you insult your mind, you insult your yearnings, you insult everything about yourself. And you can really begin to see how this unfoldment happens. However, it doesn't have to be bad news. It doesn't have to be bad news. There is this, again, this other statement in meditation that things come up. And indeed they do. And it's sometimes not always easy to welcome the things that do arise. The most unhelpful response we can possibly bring to seeing into ourselves is a response where we feel personally responsible for doing something with what is arising. I mean, part of feeling personally responsible is the judgment that I shouldn't be like this, that I should be different. The other part of that over-self-conscious responsibility is feeling this compulsion that often arises that we must change or modify or alter or overcome in some way the destructive or what we deem as being negative within ourselves, that we must do something with it, that it is up to us to do something about it. It's ours, therefore we have to change it, we feel. Suppress it, control it, get rid of it. So often in meditation, you know, you see things arise in the form of tendencies and the immediate response, the immediate response is a kind of call to action to do something with it, to get rid of them in some way. That very call to action reveals to us how very terribly identified we are with what is arising, how much we define ourselves by the tendencies and the patterns that arise, how much we are imprisoned by them. There is another way of being, rather than this busyness and this judgment of altering and modifying like some compulsive interior decorator. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's like if, if the only tool you possess is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
In it, and that, isn't that how we often act in meditation? You know, here's a thought, get it, you know? Here's negativity, get it, you know? Here's greed, I'll get that one too. How often we have that approach, you know, that we are responsible for reordering our inner world and shining it and polishing it until we can produce something that is wonderful or that we think will be wonderful. We fear that if we don't do this, that if we don't act in this way, that we're just going to be overwhelmed or lost within the tendencies that arise. But our doing is flavored by aversion too often. Our doing is flavored by rejection and by contempt and by denial too often. And then it takes the form simply of rejecting what is in order to pursue something that is more attractive. We are not here to, re to shine and polish our personal history. This is not the purpose of meditation, to produce some more flattering sense of self or to change one's form of self for one that feels more appealing and attractive to us. This is not what meditation is about. I'm not prescribing passivity or submerging ourselves in the tendencies, or submerging ourselves in this being, oh, this is what I am, you know, this is all I'll ever be. You know, no, this, is, this is also the other extreme. What I am suggesting that there is another option. We are learning here about our inner resources. We are not powerless people simply pushed to and fro by the forces of our conditioning. We are learning actually what it means to live in the spirit of freedom. We have the habit of limitation too long. And it becomes a habit. This feeling of, I can't do this, I am this, I used to be like this, I wish I was like this. We have come to live in the habit of limitation, and we are here to learn about the spirit of freedom. This is something very different. We have resources within ourselves, and we are learning to acquaint ourselves with them. We hold within ourselves possibilities of clarity, of equanimity, and of inquiry. We can develop and nurture those. And to use our energy in this way, rather than to disperse our energy in endless struggles of resistance and denial, it is not that everything always has to arise in a volcanic way. Again, this is somehow some expectation that we have that as things arise within ourselves, the only way that we can possibly work with them or go through them is to go through the fire of some volcano. You know, that there must be this volcanic eruption and then we're going to be free of it. It is not always so. We can allow change to happen in a very different way. We can actually apply qualities of sensitivity. We can actually apply qualities of balance and equanimity to ask ourselves in those moments of struggle and in those moments of denial and aversion, do I really have to be here? You know, many of us have been in those places so many times in our lives. We know those places. We know every nook and cranny and every corner of our struggles and our rejections and our denials. What is the factor? What is it that's going to allow change? 
What is it that's actually going to allow us really to let go and to know a quality of calmness and freedom amidst them? Not by erasing them. We don't have to erase anything. We don't have to negate the past. We don't have to negate past experience or memory. We don't have to endure, and we certainly do not have to suffer. And this is such a kind of misconception of meditation that depth is measured by the degree of suffering you're going through. This is not always what it's about. Do we actually have to be in those places? Can we even remind ourselves to ask that question in the midst of struggle and in the midst of denial, in the midst of feeling lost? Do I really have to be here? What is holding you? What is holding me in those places? It is not necessarily the intensity or the painfulness of the memory or the tendency, because you see in another time the same tendency, the same memory, the same image can arise, and it's not overwhelming. You can be there with it. What holds you in those places of suffering, those places of feeling locked in or stuck somewhere? It is how much holding is taking place in that moment. And do we have to be there? Where does letting go actually come from? It doesn't come from some magic formula, you know, the prescription that we can write down, do this, do this, do this, and you let go. Letting go comes from understanding, from a real sense of a vision of who we are and a real willingness to actually apply in that moment the resources that we have within ourselves. Can we, in the midst of chaos, discover a place of calm? Can we, in the midst of obstacles, discover a way of embracing? Can we, in the midst of difficult feelings and and emotions and memories, open to them, allow ourselves to feel them in our bodies, allow ourselves to feel them in a way in which we don't define ourselves by them, This is not all who I am in this moment. This is what I am holding. The moment that we begin to do this, we are countering contraction and narrowness, and we begin to open. We also begin to understand what it means to let things be, what it means to create spaciousness, what it means rather than reacting, what it means to allow and to embrace. And we find calmness and equanimity in the midst of feelings and experiences that have previously been overpowering. They are not so anymore. We can hold them within the vastness of our own awareness and our own balance. Another valley and a peak that follows it, or that is part of it, it's truer to say, is the valley of fear. I've yet to meet anyone in meditation who doesn't at some point travel through the valley of fear. It's totally understandable. So often the way that we know ourselves is through our props, through our roles, through our identities, through our thoughts. And all of that becomes a sanctuary for us, also a limitation. And you come here and really much of that begins to dissolve and the edges of it begin to soften. 
And sometimes we fear that we are losing ourselves. That if we let go of all of this, all that will be left will be some great vacuum or some black hole that we will fall into and that we will be nothing. This is not so. This is not so. Meditation is not in order to lose ourselves. It is to see the insubstantiality of so much that we hold on to. It is also to see the transparency of the limitations that we perceive because of what we hold on to. Sometimes it's hard to remember that when we're in the midst of fear and in the midst of agitation, in the midst of anxiety. It's hard to remember that meditation is about seeing the emptiness of, of, of limitation because sometimes even limitation seems attractive when you're in that moment of shakiness, of not knowing who you are. It's not that we must push fear away in any way. We must learn really how to open into fear because it is by opening into fear that we discover trust, that we discover a real quality and depth of confidence in our own being. The last thing I want to talk about is this whole area of doing and non-doing. Developing this practice calls for a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and a lot of doing. We see, we do all day long. You know, we pay attention, we focus, we observe, we practice, we put effort in. There seems to be so much doing necessary. And we can see also that the way that the practice develops and deepens is really linked to the skillfulness of our doing. You know, that we really do refine our capacity to be focused, our capacity to be awake. We also hear the words of actionlessness and effortlessness and stillness and choiceless awareness. And we wonder if we will ever get to those places when it seems like there is so much still to do. What can happen in our doing is that we can become habitual in our doing. It can also happen that the practice and our way of practicing can become somewhat mechanical and dry and joyless. It's one of the valleys we all go through where we feel like we're going through the motions of meditation, but it feels really kind of endless and barren. And we go back to the breath, and we're not even sure why we go back to the breath anymore. You know? And we pay attention to a lifting a foot off the ground, and we wonder, well, you know, anyone can do that. You know? Why pay attention to a foot moving through the air? And it's easy to lose that sense of what it's all about, what it all means to us. And it's a hard place to be in, because when we get into that place, it feels like we lose the the heart and the life of our practice. Sometimes that dryness that comes, that mechanical sense, is tied to the expectations that we have. We feel frustrated with ourselves. We've been intent on some goal or some expectation that hasn't been realized, or at least not realized speedily enough for us. And our expectations do make our practice terribly complex. It is important to remember why we do this. 
We don't do this in order to suffer. We don't do this in order to torture ourselves. We don't do this in order to punish ourselves in any way. We do this in order to be awake, not at some future time, but to be awake now. We do this in order to open, and we do this in order really to to sense the wonder of being able to be touched by this moment, to sense the wonder of being able to connect with the greatest simplicity. In a single breath, we share life in this universe. In a single step, there is so much subtlety and we connect with the earth beneath us. In a single sound, we can listen to the whole world. And in a single sight in which we are totally present can be revealed to us so much richness and beauty. In a single moment of being aware, we have such a deep vision of what our possibilities are, what it actually means to be awake. And then it doesn't matter whether a breath gets rid of a thought or whether a breath gets you more concentrated. It's enough just to breathe because you are totally awake in that breathing. It doesn't matter if in that step you feel more or less mindful. You know you are totally connected. And you have a sense of vision of your possibilities. What it really means, not to rely upon goals, not to be invested in results, just to be so present that you never felt so alive and so rich and so complete as you do in that moment of being totally awake. This practice is not about getting somewhere. It's not about doing in order to produce something. It's doing in order to be here. And when we know how to do just in order to be here in this moment totally, we sense that grace of non-doing in the midst of doing. We sense that grace of silence even in the midst of movement. We sense that grace in the step and in the breath. And everything that we do is touched with that kind of magic of real effortlessness and actionlessness. We sense stillness amidst everything. And the practice and the doing is not to go somewhere, but to be here. As we develop that sense of grace, we don't distinguish anymore between valleys and peaks because we see the richness of each moment and the learning that is possible in each moment and the ways in which each moment presents us with opportunities to learn within ourselves new depths of openness, new depths of sensitivity, and new depths of understanding. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings deepen in sensitivity. May all beings live with compassion. If we could have just a couple of minutes quietly and then we'll have a break.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.